One interesting ending, or did you see it coming? I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and in this episode I discuss the second half of August's book Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead. So each month I take a book I've never read, split it into two and discuss each half on the second and last Fridays of the month. I'll do a first impression summary alongside my thoughts and reactions and then raise any interesting ideas so far in the novel. But be aware, there may be spoilers. I'd love to share your thoughts and ideas at future episodes, so please leave a comment or start a conversation below. Or if you're listening to the podcast, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So there were some questions from the first half that I really wanted answered. How did Bigfoot die? What were those photos that she found? And is there a chance that she will end up with Oddball or in some romantic relationship? And who killed the police commandant? And why does she love the Czech Republic so much? Is there any history there? So the second half opens with Janina visiting the hamlet of Achtozja, where the dentist lives and seeing someone in his chair. She overhears men at the dentist talking about Bigfoot, the commandant and now inert who are now missing, and she reasserts that the animals are getting revenge. She sees a couple of white foxes on the way home. Quote, They were moving slowly, one behind the other. Their whiteness against the green meadow was like something from another world. They looked like the diplomatic service of the animal kingdom. Come here to reconnoitre. The arrival of spring, although beautiful, makes her feel anxious. Quote, Everything was starting to crackle. I could sense a feverish vibration under the grass, under the layer of earth, as if vast underground nerves, swollen with effort, were just about to burst. I was finding it hard to rid myself of the feeling that under it all lurked a strong, mindless will, as repulsive as the force that made the frogs climb on top of each other and endlessly copulate in Oddball's Pond. Now, ever since reading Eliot's lines, April is the cruelest month from the wasteland, I've always been interested by other people's interpretations of spring, especially the more negative ones. She recalls how she drove past the abandoned fox farm, quote, I pricked up my ears as if expecting to hear horrifying sounds coming from behind this barricade the echoes of what had happened here in the past, but it was plain to see there wasn't a living soul inside, neither human nor animal. In the course of the summer, the farm would be overgrown with burdock and nettles. In a year or two, it would vanish among the greenery, at best becoming a house of horror. It crossed my mind that one could set up a museum here as a warning. Now, she recalls how she met Inerd two years ago. He was in all his hunting gear and wasn't very pleasant and was very defensive. And she spies on the houses under her care with binoculars, even though the owners are back for summer. So there's some very strange behaviour that she rationalises, and we'll have more of that further on in the podcast. She gets chatting to the writer lady and asks her for some advice on how to write. And she says, quote, You must sit at the table and force yourself to write. It'll come of its own accord. You mustn't censor yourself. You must write down everything that comes into your head. So Janina is disappointed because she only wants to write down the good and the positive. And I certainly get that feeling from this unreliable narrator that she's often hiding painful truths and not sharing unpleasant information. For example, those photos that she found in Bigfoot's house haven't been mentioned. In the forest, Janina feels she can weep. She still doesn't acknowledge the underlying hurt. She still blames her tears on her ailments, but she is growing towards some kind of acknowledgement, I think. Quote, Here, things were quieter. The forest was like a vast, deep, welcoming refuge in which one could hide. It lulled my mind. Here, I didn't have to conceal the most troublesome of my ailments, the fact that I weep. Here, my tears could flow, 
bathing my eyes and improving my sight. Maybe that's why I could see more than people with dry eyes. Is she going to learn to acknowledge her past pain or will she never be able to admit to it openly? I'm very curious as to how this character will either flourish or decline. It's a brilliant characterization. I'm hooked to Karajuk. Anyway, continuing the narrative, she sees a man in the forest and wonders whether he's a mushroom picker. And my initial thoughts, very cynically, were that he's a poacher killing deer and that Janina was blind to this fact. However, we'll see later on who this person was. I was wrong. Anyway, she still believes it's an animal that pushed the commander into the well. And Dizzy says that people think she's a bit nutty for thinking that. Now, this man she sees in the forest appears at her front door asking for milk and bread. He turns out to be an entomologist studying a flat bark beetle. She ends up discussing the plight of beetle larvae and offering him a bed for the night. And I'm thinking, could this get romantic? I'm hoping so. I would like romance for her in some way. She's very lonely. But the very next paragraph, she says, quote, I was starting to worry that Boros, this is the gentleman, was going to infest my house like a cucuchus lava in a spruce log and only the state forest would be capable of smoking him out. Now Boris is on to the fact that she lies to herself. When he explains he has a chemical that means that female beetles will rush to the smell to lay eggs, Janina says, quote, why don't people smell like that? And he says, who told you that they don't? And she says, I can't smell anything. And he responds with, maybe you don't know you can, my dear, and in your human pride, you persist in believing in your free will. Now, ironically, she believes in astrology, which is, in my mind, the negation of free will. So she begins to become annoyed by him and is thankful for her solitude. And we also get a sneaky look into her past when she thinks, quote, for some time I shared my bed with a Catholic and nothing good came of it. Now, she writes a letter to the police suggesting that Oddball and the commandant were killed by animals. And as she's helping to fix Oddball's dry path with cement, Boris asks her what she has done in life. And she becomes very reflective, comparing her current life to a kind of prison. And we'll have more on that prison idea later. Oddball, Janina and Boris sing songs together. And Oddball stares at Janina, forcing him to apologise. This is quite a strange little scene. I think that Oddball likes Janina a lot. Anyway, they discuss what makes someone evil, the nature versus nurture debate, and Janina is on the side of nature. Quote, it's Saturn. Although other ideas are bandied around. Quote, television not being breastfed, and Boros declares himself religious. Quote, I am an atheist, and he and Janina share a bed for the night. Love is perhaps in the air. Now, Janina is convinced in the anti-science idea of phenotypes and has been doing her own small sample research. Is she looking for a way out of the prison of astrology that she's maybe set for herself? Is she looking for a way to show that one's destiny is not necessarily written in the stars, or in this case, the genes? Dizzy rushes to Janina to tell her that Innerd is found dead without a passport. Maybe someone stolen his identity for some reason? They watch the police doing their investigative work and Dizzy thinks that the murderer must still be on the loose. And then Janina has a vision that Inerd is killed by a snare that he has set himself. Boros, after examining Mould at the site of Inerd's death, thinks the body may have lain there for a while. 
It was perhaps put there only a month after the commander's death. Inez's lover had left him and his wife was filing for divorce. And according to news reports, a beast is on the prowl in the area. So Boros slowly moves out of her life. Quote, I calmly watched as the image of Boros, entomologist and taphonomist, faded and evaporated until all that was left of him was a little grey pigtail hanging in midair, ridiculous. Everything will pass. The wise man knows this from the start and has no regrets. We hear a little of Oddball's story, his parents' unhappy marriage, and then he invites Janina to a mushroom picker's ball. They end up talking about perhaps mythical beast Shupacabra that may be attacking people. Quote, Apparently it could kill with a stroke of a paw. This causes a bit of an uproar, and she thinks of the people of the Czech Republic. Quote, I think in the Czech Republic... It's totally different. The people there are capable of discussing things calmly and nobody quarrels with anyone else. Even if they wanted to, they couldn't because their language isn't suited to quarrelling. There's that pining again for the Czech Republic. What is the reason? Did her two girls go off to the Czech Republic? Maybe marry someone there? She writes another long letter to the police saying how she thinks that the animals did the killing. She lists various offences and trials of animals throughout history and is this a stupid idea, but is this some expression of her guilt, perhaps? The dentist pulls up as she is posting the letter and shouts at her, quote, The day of vengeance is nigh. Very intriguing. She sees the forester who explains how he tries to keep order in the forest and she explains the plight of Boris's beetles, but he shrugs it off saying that timber is necessary. To her, he's just another official. She goes to the mushroom picker's ball with Oddball dressed as a wolf. She sees the forester who explains how he tries to keep order in the forest. And she explains the plight of Boris's beetles, but he shrugs it off saying that timber is necessary. To her, he's just another official. And then she goes to the mushroom picker's ball with Oddball dressed as a wolf. She gets chatting with the wife of the Mushroom Pickers Association's president. And she says the president is mixed up in the poaching racket. And how she hates the fact that there are dead animals in her fridge. This is the wife of the president. Janina thinks, quote, I was noting mentally that there are still normal people in this world. Now Janina tells now of her two dogs that she used to own. Perhaps these are the two girls mentioned in the first half. And that night she commits to driving the president home on her own. Obol goes home with someone else and she dreams about her mother and grandmother in the boiler room once more and in the morning goes to Obol's to help calm down. He lets her look into his neatly arranged drawers. There's some very odd things. There's a surgical looking knives and hooks and, quote, wide metal pincers for allegedly removing cling film from its roll. Not sure I believe that. Janina continues to think about the drawers. Quote, later that day, I thought about his drawer again, that peeping into it brought me total calm and that I would really like to be one of those useful utensils. She's definitely got a thing for drawers. Why is that? How does it reflect her character? Is it a way for her to acknowledge in a relatively safe way, mundane drawers, that she has deep secrets kept hidden away that she's unable to face? What do you think? There's definitely a reason for this drawer, love. Anyway, the president is found murdered. And according to Janina, he was suffocated by beetles that were crawling all over him. Although, quote, he was covered in those insects. They'd gone into his mouth, his lungs, his stomach, his ears... The women said he was crawling with beetles. I didn't see it, 
I can perfectly well imagine it. Boris. Oh, Boris. Maybe Boris's influence on Janina. She did drive him home from the hall on her own. Janina, you are very guilty, I think. Anyway, she writes a long letter to the police, again explaining how astrology is responsible for the deaths. And then she's taken to the police for questioning. She explains how that while she waited for the present, she thought of the star's influence on humans and compares it to our influence on animals, in this example, dogs. Quote, we know what's good for them. We walk them on leads so they won't get lost. We sterilise them so they won't senselessly reproduce. We take them to the vet for medical treatment. They don't understand where this comes from, why it happens, for what purpose, yet they yield to us. So maybe we too should yield to the influence of the stars. Now, according to Janina, the president was nowhere to be seen, so she left him at the mushroom picker's ball. Quote, even if he's fallen asleep in a drunken state in the burdocks, it was a warm night and he wasn't in any danger. That's Janina's words. The police ask about Anselm Inerd, and she says that she's surprised that that is his first name, even though she's already referred to his first name in a previous vision. And this makes me very untrusting of Janina. The police read her statements from other people to show how abusive she has been about the poaching. And they also say that she overturned the poacher's ladders, which are these sort of pulpits in the forest. So we see another hidden side to her revealed to us through the police. The police are also intrigued as to how she knew the species of beetle on the president's body, which was Cucujus hematodes. She's looking very guilty, this Janina person. She's put into prison for 48 hours while they search her house. And she describes how, quote, when a human being is to be born, a spark begins to fall. And then she describes in detail how the spark passes the planets, which gives the spark the characteristics of being a human on its way to Earth. It's very new age thinking. Anyway, she's released the next day and she goes into a mental and physical decline and is hospitalised. She bonds with Dr Ali, who comes to visit her, and we learn he's quite nomadic in his lifestyle. The writer visits her as well, saying that she's moving out. And she also says, quote, You know what? Sometimes it seems to me we're living in a world that we fabricate for ourselves. We decide what's good and what isn't. We draw maps of meaning for ourselves. And then we spend our whole lives struggling with what we have invented for ourselves. The problem is that each of us has our own version of it, so people find it hard to understand each other. And Janina responds with, there was some truth in what she said. Now, for some reason, for someone who believes in astrology, surely this is an understatement. Janina reflects on her words further and thinks, quote, I think it tallies with one of my theories, my belief that the human psyche evolved in order to defend us against seeing the truth, to prevent us from catching sight of the mechanism. The psyche is our defence system. It makes sure we'll never understand what's going on around us. Its main task is to filter information, even though the capabilities of our brains are enormous, for it would be impossible to carry the weight of this knowledge because every tiny particle of the world is made of suffering. Now, she makes a recovery and is cared for by Dizzy, Oddball and Good News. And Janina subscribes to Lazy Venus Syndrome. It's a general lethargy of spirit. It's one of Janina's big ideas. It's very questionable, though. I'll talk more on that later. There's more conjecture as to who caused the murders. It's possibly mafia elements. That's some people's thinking. Now, she remembers going to Father Russell about the death of her two dogs, her two little girls. Janine says, quote, they were probably shot by hunters. 
Now there's a motive. The priest says she shouldn't talk of animals like they're humans. And then Janina disrupts a church service for her school children in honour of the patron saint of hunters. As a consequence, she is sacked from her job as a teacher. And then she invites Oddball, Good News and Dizzy over for mustard soup and thinks that they're all useless. Who has mustard soup, by the way? Is that a thing? Let me know. Now, remember, she had that strange lazy Venus syndrome thought where she seemed to put a lot of pressure on people's high achievements. These are her thoughts. Quote, Suddenly, I saw the four of us in a different way, as if we had a lot in common, as if we were a family. I realised that we were the sort of people whom the world regards as useless. We do nothing essential. We don't produce important ideas, no vital objects or foodstuffs. We don't cultivate the land. We don't fuel the economy. We haven't done any reproducing except for Oddball, who does have a son, even if it's just black coat. So far, we've never provided the world with anything useful. We haven't come up with the idea for any invention. We have no power. We have no resources apart from our small properties. We do our jobs, but they are of no significance for anybody else. If we went missing, nothing would really change. Nobody would notice. She seems to have an epiphany, thank God. Listen to this, quote, But why should we have to be useful and for what reason? Who divided the world into useless and useful and by what right? Does a thistle have no right to life or a mouse that eats the grain in a warehouse? What about bees and drones, weeds and roses? Whose intellect can have the audacity to judge who is better and who worse? A large tree, crooked and full of holes, survives for centuries without being cut down because nothing could possibly be made out of it. This example should raise the spirits of people like us. Everyone knows the profit to be reaped from the useful, but nobody knows the benefit to be gained from the useless. I'm really glad that she's finally come to this conclusion because her thoughts on the lazy Venus syndrome were pretty harsh. I'll discuss that later. Interestingly, she also thinks this is the last time she's going to see Oddball dizzy and good news quote i looked at them perhaps for the last time and then we learned that the presbytery is up in fire and father russell is dead murder just seems to follow janina around hold on maybe she's the murderer and then we do find out exactly who the murderer is now spoiler alert if you don't want to hear the details of the ending Skip forward two minutes. The other three all say that they know she was the murderer of the president because of the Beatles. It's because the president and Father Russell were hunters and Dizzy shakes her and says, why? And then she produces the photographs that she found at Bigfoot's. Finally, we'll find out what those photos were. It's bound to be something to do with her dogs. Perhaps them dead or held up like a trophy by one of the hunters. And indeed it is. The photo has lots of dead game and in the corner her two dead dogs. The president is in the photo as well as Innerd, the commandant and Father Russell. Bigfoot is also in the picture as well. So the dogs were hunted and probably fed to Innerd's foxes. She repeats that Bigfoot choked on the deer's bones as, quote, punishment. So she didn't kill him. She recounts how she killed the commandant with a block of ice after she stopped him driving in the road drunk after visiting Innerd's brothel. She kept a deer trotter to make all the random prints to imply that the deer killed him. And then she explains how she killed Innerd using a snare. She took his keys and passport and set all the foxes free. Quote, I wasn't lying when I kept insisting it was animals taking revenge on people. That was the truth. I was their tool. So we also learn exactly how the president died using the tools she kept in the rear of her car. 
Dizzy sends a warning to Janina in a copy of Blake that the police are going to come looking for her. He's highlighted a Blake letter which contains the words, quote, The man who can read the stars often is oppressed by their influence, no less than the Newtonian who reads not and cannot read is oppressed by his own reasonings and experiments. We're all subject to error. Who shall that we are not all subject to crime? And then she walks to the Czech Republic. And just then, quote, over on the Czech side, Venus, my damsel, shone out above the horizon. She was growing brighter by the minute, as if a smile had risen on the dark face of the sky. So now I knew I had chosen a good direction and was heading the right way. She glowed in the sky as I safely crossed the forest and imperceptibly stepped across the border. She was guiding me. I walked across the Czech fields, constantly moving in her direction as she descended lower, as if encouraging me to follow her over the horizon. And then she lives with Boros at the edge of the forest and she reflects on how all her friends are safe and the novel ends. So, questions answered. The photos, those photographs that she found in his drawer were her two girls, who are the dogs. Is there a chance of the two misfits getting together, forming a relationship? Well, Boros and her really get together at the end. And we find out who Dizzy is. He's the ex-student. How does she know the date of her own death? Well, she believes in astrology. Who killed the police commandant? Well, we know that now. We don't really know still why she's in love with the Czech Republic. Why do you think she's still in love with the Czech Republic? So overall, I really enjoyed this book. It really got me thinking about the cold and the nature of Poland and the problems arising from hunting. And in particular, in this case, a group of males causing chaos to the local animal population. It was a really good example of an unreliable narrator. She had me guessing for quite a long time. Would I recommend it to a friend? Very, very much so. Anyone interested in the tale of an unreliable narrator, a murder mystery, an exploration of the cold and the winter of Poland? So there's some very interesting ideas to come out of the novel. I, I had so many. Uh, so I'm going to start with um, four by fours. I liked her opinion on four by fours. When commenting on Innards four by four, she says, quote, I don't like those high, powerful cars made with war in mind rather than walks in the lap of nature. The large wheels churn up the ruts in the dirty roads and damage the footpaths. Their mighty engines make a lot of noise and produce exhaust fumes. I'm convinced that their owners have small members and compensate for this deficiency by having large cars. Brilliant. I also like Janina's unacknowledged eccentricities and her unreliability. I believe she thinks she's quite sane, but it's clear that she rationalises very strange behaviour. For example, the way she still surveils the house using binoculars from a hilltop, even though the residents are living there during the summer. And as I mentioned previously, she's an unreliable narrator. We can't quite trust everything she writes on the page. The way she rationalises her tears as an ailment rather than a deep unhappiness, and the way that she doesn't immediately acknowledge that the deer that she loves so much are being slaughtered by poachers. Quote, first I noticed the lack of deer. They had vanished or perhaps the grass was so high that it hid their perfect red backs. What it actually meant was that the deer had already started to carve. And then she deflects the horrible truth twice. She says the grass is too high and the deer had started to carve. It's very poignant. Well, maybe I'm being tricked by the implied author. Maybe there is an innocent reason for the deer to be missing, but I would assume that it's being hunted. 
I like the idea of personal prisons. If you remember from the first half of the podcast, she compares the construction of one's own horoscope to a prison. Quote, but at the same time, it's a form of imprisonment in space, like a tattooed prison number. There's no escaping it. Therefore, I'm convinced that we should get to know our prison very well. And the comment really reminds me of Blake's Mind Forged Manacles from the poem London. Continuing the prison idea, when Boris asks her what she has done with her life, she says, quote, This question was so unexpected that I instantly let myself be carried away by memories. They began to sail past my eyes, and typically for memories, everything in them seemed better, finer, and happier than reality. It's strange, but we didn't say a word. For people of my age, the places that they truly loved and to which they once belonged are no longer there. The places of their childhood and youth have ceased to exist. The villages where they went on holiday, the parks with uncomfortable benches where their first loves blossomed, the cities, cafes and houses of their past, and if their outer form has been preserved, it's all the more painful, like a shell with nothing inside it anymore. I've nowhere to return to. It's like a state of imprisonment. The walls of the cell are the horizon of what I can see. Beyond them exists a world that's alien to me and doesn't belong to me. So for people like me, the only thing possible is here and now, for every future is doubtful. Everything yet to come is barely sketched and uncertain, like a mirage that can be destroyed by the slightest twitch of the air. It's like a state of imprisonment, a personal imprisonment. Now, I mentioned this lazy Venus syndrome. It's another one of her amusing theories. Quote, In this case, we're dealing with a person whom fortune has gifted generously, but who has entirely failed to use their potential. Such people are bright and intelligent, but don't apply themselves to their studies and use their intelligence to play card games or patience instead. They have beautiful bodies, but they destroy them through neglect, poison themselves with harmful substances and ignore doctors and dentists. This Venus induces a strange kind of laziness. Lifetime opportunities are missed because you overslept, because you didn't feel like going, because you were late, because you were neglectful. It's a tendency to be sybaritic, to live in a state of mild semi-consciousness, to fritter your life away on petty pleasures, to dislike effort and be devoid of any posture for competition. Long mornings, unopened letters, things put off for later, abandoned projects, a dislike of any authority and a refusal to submit to it, going your own way in a taciturn, idle manner. You could say such people are of no use at all. It reminds me a little bit of the testosterone autism idea of the first half, actually. We see that she changes her mind about this later when she compares it to a rotten tree and how a rotten tree can have value. I think toxic masculinity is another interesting idea in the book. The hunters, all male, display a very bravado masculinity. Quote, If not for the corpses lying at their feet, one might have thought these people were celebrating a happy event. So self-satisfied did they look. Pots of hunter's stew, sausages and kebabs, skewered on sticks, bottles of vodka, cooling in buckets, the masculine dower of tanned hide, oiled shotguns, alcohol and sweat, gestures of domination, is signia of power. As a final point, I think it is interesting that she killed three very important pillars of society. She killed the police commandant, she killed a priest who's a pillar of religion, and Inad, the rich businessman, those three things, the police, religion, business. So there's some ideas I had about the book. There's so many interesting ideas. What were your ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do let me know. Send me an email. 
to bookshook at yahoo.com or just write a comment below if you're watching this on YouTube. Now, just a little bit about the author, Olga Togrzejuk. She was born in 1962. She's a Polish writer, activist and public intellectual, considered one of the most critically acclaimed and successful authors of her generation in Poland. For her novel, Flights, Tokajuk was awarded the 2018 Man Booker International Prize. Wikipedia goes on to say, Tokajuk is particularly noted for the mythical tone of her writing. A clinical psychologist from the University of Warsaw, she has published a collection of poems, several novels, as well as other books with shorter prose works. I'd like to now talk a little bit about September's book, The Corrections by Jonathan Franson, which is 623 pages. It was published in 2001. If you're reading alongside, I'll be reading up to page 325, halfway. Now, I'd always heard of The Corrections as a modern American masterpiece. I know nothing about Jonathan Franzen, so I'm just going to read the first page and see how we get on. St. Jude. That's a place in America. I had to look that up. The madness of an autumn prairie cold front coming through. You could feel it. Something terrible was going to happen. The sun low in the sky, a minor light, a cooling star, gust after gust of disorder, trees restless, temperatures falling, the whole northern religion of things coming to an end. No children in the yards here. Shadows lengthened on yellowing zoysia. Red oaks and pin oaks and swamp white oaks rained acorns on houses with no mortgage. Storm windows shuddered in the empty bedrooms, and the drone and hiccup of a clothes dryer, the nasal contention of a leaf blower, the ripening of local apples in a paper bag, the smell of the gasoline with which Alfred Lambert had cleaned the paintbrush from his morning painting at the wicker love seat. Three in the afternoon was a time of danger in these gerontocratic suburbs of St. Jude. Alfred had awakened in the great blue chair in which he'd been sleeping since lunch. He'd had his nap, and there would be no local news until five o'clock. Two empty hours were a silence in which infections bred. He struggled to his feet and stood by the ping-pong table, listening in vain for Enid. Ringing throughout the house was an alarm bell that no one but Alfred and Enid could hear directly. It was the alarm bell of anxiety. It was like one of those big cast-iron dishes with an electric clapper that sent school children into the street in fire drills. By now it had been ringing for so many hours that Lamberts no longer heard the message of bell ringing. But as with any sound that continues for so long, that you have the leisure to learn its component sounds, as with any word you stare at until it resolves itself into a string of dead letters, instead heard a clapper rapidly striking a metallic resonator, not a pure tone but a granular sequence of percussions, with a keenly overlayer of overtones ringing for so many days that it simply blended into the background, except at certain early morning hours, when one or the other of them awoke in a sweat and realised that a bell had been ringing in their heads for as long as they could remember, ringing for so many months that the sound had given way to a kind of meta-sound whose rise and fall was not the beating of compression waves, but the much, much slower waxing and waning of their consciousness of the sound, which consciousness was particularly acute when the weather itself was in an anxious mood. Then Enid and Alfred, she on her knees in the dining room, opening drawers, he in the basement surveying the disastrous ping-pong table, each felt near to exploding with anxiety. And there we go. That's the first page or so of the corrections. Quite academic in the way that the narrator is thinking about consciousness and anxiety. And he mentions meta sound. Quite sort of academic ideas. 
so it's obviously a very suburban, kind of very boring place that these two people live. I'm excited about hearing about their life. Winner of the National Book Award, winner of the James Tate Black Memorial Prize. And look, there's a lovely picture of a steam liner on the front. I wonder how that will relate to the story, if it will. Anyway, thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. So leave a comment below, or if you're listening to the podcast, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. And if you want to recommend a future book to read together, do let me know. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a thumbs up and subscribe or give it five stars on your podcast app. Thank you very much. I look forward to discussing the first part of the corrections by Jonathan Franson at the next episode of Bookshook on the second Friday of September. That's the 9th of September. See you then. Mm-hmm.